introducing our new boss, AJC President and Publisher, Andrew Morse. Our mission is to be the most essential and engaging source of news in the lives of people in Atlanta. Welcome to a special edition of the Politically Georgia podcast from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Greg Bluestein. And I'm Patricia Murphy, and we are two of your political insiders here at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. If it's your first time with the podcast, welcome. Where have you been? Be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And be sure to follow us and to rate us and review us because it really helps us grow the show. We're here live. Well, not live. We're here in real life, IRL, at the Cox uh, podcast studio, which I didn't even know we had producer Shani B, um, but it's on sort of near the Cox campus, sort of near our headquarters building with, I like to, you know, you you guys have heard Kevin Riley. We always introduce him as our boss's boss's boss. Well, this is our boss's 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 boss, (laughs) Andrew Morris. Uh, And we're looking forward to talking to you about, A, how you got here, you know, your, your path through journalism and B what you want to do <laughs> now that you're here as, as one of the most prominent media executives in the South now as head of the AJC. Absolutely. Uh, first of all, welcome. Our first question is, are Greg and I getting raises anytime soon? <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking through my notes and I, I have not gotten to that part yet. I don't think you've even actually officially started, have you? When is your first day? My first official day is Monday, but I am sleeves rolled up and in it with you guys already. Well, you were wonderful to already. I, I don't know that I would recommend this to any new leader, but I give you points for bravery. You came in and did an all-hands meeting with a room full of journalists and said, <laughs> ask me anything. And and I was very, very impressed because people really did ask you anything and you answered all the questions. I think Greg and I could not help ourselves. We kind of needed to dial it back a little bit. But um, that was, I think, a great way to get started. And then it, from that conversation really sprang this idea. We're like, we should have him on the podcast because you have this really unique background to be coming in as a publisher because you've worked on the editorial side for so long. Also a multimedia background and experience all over the world. And I think for the AGC to have somebody with that background kind of going into the next phase of journalism, I think our audience is going to really get a lot out of this. And Patricia led off that town hall with a question and she finished it with a question. So she, <laughs> she, <laughs> They're both great questions. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. We're here with our new AJC president and publisher, Andrew Morris. Andrew, I guess the first question is, we're going to talk a little bit more about your bio, and then next we'll talk about 
what you plan to do at the AJC. But first question is, what was it that drew you to journalism in the first place? And, and did you really get snubbed by every newspaper you applied to after college? <laughs> um, well, I, what drew me to journalism, and I'll answer this question in a way that probably rings true with both of you. I, I did not choose journalism. Journalism chose me. It's all I've ever wanted to do. It's a, it's a calling. It's something I feel very deeply committed to. And truthfully, from the time I was a kid, it's all I ever wanted to do. I I, uh, I loved to write. I was the editor of my high school paper. I went to college and I was the editor of the Cornell Daily Sun, Ithaca's only morning newspaper, which was uh, a, a great job. And it, it uh, because we covered the city of Ithaca, I would skip classes and go uh, sit in courtrooms and ride along with the police and cover the administration. And uh, I knew it's all I ever wanted to do. And so when I graduated, uh, it is true. In fact, I applied to over 100 different newspapers and I was rejected from every single <laughs> one. I got one maybe uh, and then I wound up at ABC News and uh, the rest was history. So tell us about some of that early history because I know that being in those newsrooms, it's an exciting place, but you are way down at the bottom of the ladder. But what was it like for you to be in those newsrooms? Because that's an incredibly high profile place to be at such a young age, but it's very competitive. So how did you find it right when you were starting? It was remarkable. And when I started at ABC News, you would walk in and there was a Mount Rushmore of talent on the wall. Peter Jennings, Ted Koppel, Diane Sawyer, Barbara Walters, who sadly just passed away, Charlie Gibson, Hugh Downs, some of the biggest names in journalism were there. And so I used to walk to work every day as a 22-year-old kid and couldn't quite believe that I was lucky enough to work at ABC News. So it was really an extraordinary place. My very first job, my first boss said to me, congratulations, you're hired, and you have the opportunity to do every imaginable menial task and to do it with relish. And I said, great, sign me up. And so I Xeroxed and I faxed and I ran scripts around the building and I did everything I could. And then in the meantime, I would raise my hand and if there was a reporting assignment that nobody wanted to do or a stakeout at 4.30 in the morning that nobody wanted to do, I was your guy. And in fact, one of the earliest assignments I had, and it's great for Politically Georgia, is uh, was during uh, the Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky scandal. That's what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> Those were some good stakeouts. They were. So I was, it's a pretty funny story. So I was an intern with the incredible investigative team. Uh, Jackie Judd was the correspondent. Uh, and there were some remarkable producers who broke real news on that story. Um, so I worked with them. And then in the early days, trying to essentially stake out Watergate, waiting to see when Monica would come out, the former presidential candidate, Bob Dole, came out one morning because he lived at Watergate and he came over to all the journalists and he had a box of donuts. <laughs> and we're all standing there and it was early in the morning and Bob Dole said, here's your breakfast. You all voted for the wrong guy. <laughs> it was a great story. Well, I want to ask you about something that does not seem like a menial task, which is after you started as a desk assistant, one of the first big stories you covered was you tracked a team trying to break the record for the fastest transatlantic crossing. How, how did that come about? It was neat. So at that point, I was uh, I was a producer in London, and World News Tonight and Nightline, Good Morning America at the time, there was still a desire to tell these great stories from all over the world. So in fact, there was a, a sailboat race right around the millennium for the biggest, fastest boats ever built. And uh, Bob Woodruff and I uh, pitched a story. Bob was a correspondent in London at the time to uh, sail on one of these boats at the beginning of the race. So we actually sailed for two days 
at the beginning of this transatlantic race, jumped overboard in the Straits of Gibraltar into a speedboat that took us to shore and we filed. And then a reasonably long story short, the captain of the boat was setting out to break the transatlantic record and he said, do you want to ride along? And I somehow convinced uh, Ted Koppel and the executive producer of Nightline at the time, Tom Batag, that this would have been a great story for us to cover. And again, the rest was history. It was a dream. I feel like this was a lot more interesting than my jobs in the tw- in my 20s. <laughs> well, I would have gotten seasick, though. <laughs> I made some bad choices. Now I'm reevaluating a few things here. Um, so that obviously one of the coolest stories that anyone could cover. Um, but you also did some war coverage. Tell us about that. I did. Well, I moved to London uh, in 1998. It was a tremendous opportunity. And not long after I got there, um, there was a string of really important international stories. So the the bombing campaign in, in uh, the war in Kosovo began, uh, and that was really the first uh, story that I had an opportunity to cover in the field. So that was, um, it's still a pretty young age. That was, frankly, it was a story where I really learned, and I was fortunate enough to have had really remarkable uh, mentors, correspondents, producers, photographers, uh, uh, sound recordists who had been in the field for years and years and years. And Kosovo is my first entry. And then, of course, after 9-11, not long after 9-11, I found myself in Afghanistan and spent the majority of the first year of the war in Afghanistan. And it was, um, journalistically, it was a remarkable time to be there. And personally, in my 20s, was a, a pretty extraordinary experience. Were you reporting on air? What were you doing? What were your jobs exactly? How are you covering it? So I was a field producer, um, but I had already at that time um, had quite a bit of experience and, and curiosity about digital. So I would go in and, and a big part of my job, I was a coordinating producer. So for example, I would go in to Kandahar, Afghanistan and set up the operation. How do we live? Let's find a house for everybody. Let's find fixers and drivers and All of that back-end stuff. All of that, in addition to how do we report out the story? How do we figure out um, where the next troop movements are gonna be? How do we figure out what's going on with the latest pockets of Taliban in Kandahar? Um, So I, I was a bit of a jack of all trades, but on the digital side, I would also write and I would also start doing some uh, some reporting. And occasionally, I started dabbling with on-air reporting when I was in the field, but I had a premonition that I was going to lose my hair. <laughs> <laughs> now, you you guys cannot uh, see exactly Andrew right now. He has a, um, a full head of... Um, short, uh, not as much hair maybe as you had once. Yeah, close crop. (laughs) Maybe not as much hair as you had when you were at Cornell. Um, and at this point, are you thinking of of your career path? Are you thinking, I'm going to do this forever? I'm going to be a war correspondent. I'm going to be tracking down news, developing stories. Or where was your head at that point? It's a great question, Patricia. And in fact, with every job that I've had, I have found a way to sort of start going in one direction and wound up pivoting to another. So I actually thought I started working in Washington. I was a political junkie, and I thought I was going to spend my whole career in D.C. Then I wound up overseas, and I was based in London, covering Europe, Middle East, and Africa, reporting from war zones, and I thought, this is all I ever wanted to do. And I had some remarkable opportunities, Afghanistan and Iraq, and I spent a lot of time in Israel and Gaza. I was in Yemen for the USS coal bombing. And then I got a call one day, from my bosses and they said, hey, there's a job open in Hong Kong. We need a bureau chief and producer in Hong Kong. You want to move to Asia? 
I had never been to Asia before. Literally, had never stepped foot in Southeast but you Asia. You sound perfect. And it sounds great. <laughs> Let's do it. I'm in. So, so I spent the next three years there, and that was pretty remarkable as well. And that was also still uh, re- producing reporting, but also the first time I had really had to manage different teams and different satellite bureaus throughout the region. Um, but I thought I was going to be there forever. And then I wound up getting married, and my wife and I were trying to figure out what to do, and should we stay overseas or move back to the States. And uh, we, I actually proposed to my wife over email from Baghdad. So romantic. It, wor- it worked. <laughs> <laughs> it worked spontaneously. Um, but then we decided to move back, and instead of running around chasing stories, I started running shows. Okay, so before we get to the management side, one of your more interesting but briefer stops was two weeks in North Korea. I've always been so fascinated by anything to do with that country. What, what was that like being one of the few Western journalists behind the North Korean lines? It was a really fascinating trip because it had been some time. This was probably 2002, 2003, and there hadn't been a Western journalist in for a while. And we found a way through a a group that was taking different Western tourists in essentially for propaganda trips. And they said, you can come along, only you, but we'll let you come along and report and document the trip. I said, well, great, you know, I'm going to do my own reporting, you know, and I'll talk about this group that's on the trip. And they said, fine, great. So I spent about two weeks there and it was really, it was eye-opening and it was remarkable. And, um, it was also uh, a, a little bit dicey towards the end because I wound up running afoul of my minders at a certain point. What'd you do? Um, we were on this tour and we were in a camp. Um, it, it, essentially, it was a, a show farm where they wanted to show how happy the workers were working in the fields and everything was bright. And I had just had meetings uh, with an NGO at the time. I think it was the World Food Program telling me, you know, giving me all the details of how awful the famine conditions were. And uh, I had done that secretly the night before. And so I was in this camp and I said, I've got to take the opportunity to to do something here. And so I stood up and I was filming it on camera. And one of my minders overheard me talking about the famine conditions. Let's say that that wasn't well received. And before I knew it, they uh, I found my room ransacked, my tapes confiscated. And uh, I was briefly detained before at the end of the day they they finally let really? me out and let us out so it was a little bit dicey and did you get the tapes back uh i ultimately did not get my tapes back but there was a dutch documentary crew along that do- did document some of it and we were able to report it uh afterwards wow amazing so you have your experience in north korea i could say that also convincing somebody to think maybe management is uh, a <laughs> I'm going to send some other 20-year-old to North Korea. Um, So you moved back to New York, and how do you make that transition into producing shows? Because it's a really different skill set, but obviously you'd had contact with the producers throughout your career. How did you make that decision? You know, it was interesting, and I actually trace it back to a couple of my bosses at the time. And I think we all go through these career moments, right? What do you want to do when you grow up? And I actually really thought that I did want to be on air. And I had a boss who said to me, you know, we think you can be a really good on-air correspondent, like a, like a B correspondent. A B we, correspondent? We think you can be an A-plus executive producer. <laughs> and, it, you know, and, and I'm like, wait a second, I can be an A-plus correspondent. But, you know, you scratch your head and you think about it and you think about the skill sets that you have and you think about what you want to do. And you know what? They were right. And um, a lot of the skills I had as a producer also were the ones that really interested me and excited me. So I came back, and funny enough, 
I thought I wanted a big prominent role in the newsroom because I had this pretty prominent role overseas. And my bosses at the time said, congratulations, you're coming back to New York. You've had this great experience overseas. We want you to work the overnight shows. Perfect. <laughs> and so I spent six months uh, on the overnight shows, and it was the best decision I ever made because I had the chance to run a show, to make mistakes, to fail, and to learn from my failures. And so that became a really... Uh, terrific learning experience. And when I cut my teeth there, we had a lot of fun on that show. I graduated and moved on to different programs. And you started getting more involved in the digital elements of not just the TV side, but the digital side too. And as you went from ABC to Bloomberg and then to CNN, what did you learn about the digital operation as you started moving up the ranks? Well, I've been fortunate to have been able to watch digital news evolve. I just have been lucky enough at, at, at the point that I've been in my career to really have evolved with the business. So in the early stages at ABC, um, and it was like this in most newsrooms, it was how do you take the legacy content that you have and just put it on a website? And we tried to move from doing that mechanically to how do we create the best content for our digital audiences? And so it took a lot of collaboration with our anchors and with our talents. We started doing some pretty innovative live streams. We did one of the earliest partnerships with Facebook. You know, I remember right when Facebook was launching and getting popular, we, we partnered with them around the 2006 midterms. David Muir was our anchor. Uh, Randy Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg's sister, was a special correspondent. And we, we did a live streaming broadcast in 2006 on Facebook, which is pretty neat. Yeah. Um, but it was a lot of trial and error in those early days. It's so interesting because even when you talked about doing those stakeouts during the Clinton impeachment scandal, that was when the Drudge Report had just started. And that really changed the way that news was delivered. It changed the tempo. And it really put that pressure on people to start to balance immediacy with quality. How were you trying? Were you seeing people pushing you to think about making compromises on the quality side. How did you stand up for that when you're building out these digital platforms, but you also want to make sure that you're reporting accurately and living up to the new standards that these operations are expecting? Well, I think at every stop that I've had at ABC, at Bloomberg, at CNN, I've been fortunate to be in newsrooms and organizations where nothing is more important than getting it right. And that was really critical. And so that was always our approach on the digital side at ABC, at Bloomberg, at, at CNN, and uh, you know, nothing is more important than getting it right. The interesting dissonance came between where do we break something? In those early days, was it should we hold a story for World News Tonight at 6.30, or should we post it first on abcnews.com? And those were pretty interesting debates. And, and clearly, obviously, the world's evolved since then, so that's no longer a debate. But those were some interesting conversations. And were there starting to be already at ABC News Digital and then Bloomberg and CNN, were there revenue challenges as well? Because the problem with digital for legacy media is that it doesn't pay the bills the same way that the old fashioned way did. Um, were you running into those or were you just given the budgets that you wanted to work with? Well, you know, the most recently at CNN, um, you know, CNN is a remarkably strong organization, and the digital business at CNN is a remarkably strong organization. And I think what we've seen now in recent years, whether it's CNN, whether it's the New York Times, um, you know, there are digital businesses that have become 
really robust and really profitable. So I think, again, in those early days, it was complicated, but I think the means of monetizing digital have advanced tremendously. Mm-hmm. Well, now CNN.com has one of the most popular the websites. The, 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 yeah, the most in, mm-hmm. in the nation for years now. Was it an afterthought not so long ago, though? Was it something that in the building and CNN headquarters was, was not as prestigious as being on air, being on headline news? You know, it was it was always a in in my time there was a real priority and um, you know I can't really talk specifically about you know my time at CNN but what I can say though is 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 it was um, you know there were there were a couple of different priorities that the organization had and the organization really put forward and you know the first was always the essential journalism that made the place great. Another big priority of my boss Jeff Zucker was to make sure that we could build a really robust digital business. And so it was gratifying because all of the talent and uh, all of the staff, you know, the whole company rode in that direction. So we saw it really as uh, an important part of the strategy. Okay. And so one of the things, one of the aspects of the company that you were in charge of was CNN Plus. Can you tell us what happened there? Sure. Look, the impetus around CNN Plus was, could we help figure out uh, the future of CNN? CNN Plus was a big bet. And it was a bet that we felt was really important for the future of the organization. And we put a lot of work into uh, what we thought was building a a great product and building great content. And the reality at the end of the day is sometimes with changes of ownership come changes in strategy. And when I left the organization, I said publicly, as did Chris Lick, the new chairman and CEO of CNN, that it was clear that the new owners had... um, had a a difference of opinion in terms of what the right strategy should be for CNN. And that's okay. And uh, I think what what we all, uh, the conclusion we came to, while it was disappointing and it was not the outcome that we wanted, uh, we had some, uh, a lot of really committed people building a product that they were very proud of. And unfortunately, uh, we never really got to see the potential for what it could be. But uh, the new owners came in, they had a different strategy, that's okay. Do you think a strategy like that could have worked if it was given time to develop? Look, I believe very deeply that uh, there is a path for newsrooms to build really successful, scalable subscription products. I think the New York Times has built a blueprint for anybody who cares to look at it in terms of how you serve an audience, how you deliver quality content, how you invest in product and technology, and then ultimately how you market that product to subscribers who want it the most. It all begins with knowing who the audience is and super serving them and then getting really creative about what you're creating, why you're creating it, how you're creating it. So look, I I do think the model that the Times has built has been a really successful model and you can see that success every time they report earnings. I personally believed, as, as we said publicly at the time, that that was the right path forward for CNN. And I believe actually very strongly that it's a playbook that can be very effective for the AJC. And in terms of, um, you've had this incredibly long career in TV news and digital, and not only have those industries changed, journalism has changed quite a bit as well. How do you see the media landscape ahead? I thought something that you said in our town hall was so true. Pretty much any news operation is a multi- media news service at this point. The AJC started as print. Now we have, now we're print, digital, 
podcasts. Obviously, um, we have video components. CNN started as you know satellite-based cable. Now they have a, this huge online component. You have to know how to write. You have to know how to shoot. So all of these multimedia pieces. But now, obviously, larger news organizations get really freaked out about TikTok and <laughs> um, kids walking around with so their phones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, their parents get freaked out as well. Um, but the audiences are just galloping in such a different direction. Even I really, I used to be the biggest TV news junkie. I hardly ever watch TV anymore. Where do you see digital news going in the future as a macro? It's a good question. And, and I don't see the world in singular format. So I don't see the world through a print lens or an audio lens or a television lens or a digital lens. I, I think the job of journalistic organizations is to report the news, to create great content, to do great storytelling, and then distribute it. And so I do think that you need uh, expertise and capabilities in all those different formats. And look, we're, we're a newspaper, right? But we're sitting here doing a podcast. And as I told everybody in the town hall the other day, I'm going to try really hard not to refer to the AJC as a newspaper. And I don't want that to give anybody any concern. I think it becomes an incredible possibility for what we could be. You mentioned TikTok. And I, I think there's a danger in shiny objects. And this has always been the case in digital. And I've seen a lot of news organizations get pulled off the track tangentially a little bit when it comes to the latest, greatest news social platform. Now, we do have to be able to reach audiences. But you know what? They're our audiences. Anytime we put the AJC logo on a piece of video, it carries our brand and our credibility. And I want people to understand what makes the AJC great. If we just start... Um, you know, putting water skiing squirrels on TikTok with the hope that we're going to get users. It doesn't work because it, it doesn't fit with our brand. Give me flashbacks to the 2016 campaign where I was Mr. Snapchat. <laughs> and now <laughs> I haven't used that app in about... And you went water skiing just for that, didn't you? <laughs> He's the water skiing squirrel. He's the about, water skiing about squirrel. Six years. <laughs> but, but that's a great example, Greg. And, and again, like, we should be doing great content that serves our needs and our audiences for different platforms, again, so long as it makes editorial sense and so long as it makes business sense. The problem with a lot of these platforms, and I've been public about it over the years, is typically they are not the friends of news organizations. They, they have never been. And I think it's really important to resist the urge to put finite resources into efforts that are going to make money for a platform and not make money for your own product. I'm, I'm willing to partner with any platform out there that sees value in our content. I'm not willing to give them our content for free. No one can see this, but I'm nodding my head yes. <laughs> Agreed. We both are. Okay, well, Andrew, we've talked a little bit about who you are, what you've done. After the break, we'll talk about what you see as the future of the AJC. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. 
Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, with your other host, Patricia Murphy. And we're not only your hosts of the Politically Georgia podcast, but we're also two of the three authors of the Morning Jolt newsletter, which sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning if you're a subscriber to the AJC. You can join our digital community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts in your first month of unlimited digital access is just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcasts so you always know what's really going on. Andrew just got to hear our spiel that I've said probably, <laughs> how many episodes have we had of this? 300 something? I've probably said that 300 something times. <laughs> so uh, Andrew, we talked about where you came from, how you got to this position, but what we haven't asked you yet is, why the AJC? You probably had a lot of opportunities with other media outlets. You probably had a lot of opportunities to start your own. You've started your own media firms before. So why did you pick this opportunity? Well, as I've thought about what I wanted to do next, it really boiled down to two basic things. The first was I wanted to be able to get up every day and work in pursuit of a mission that I believe deeply in, and I wanted to do it with great people. Life's too short to do anything else. And that seems simple, but it's not if you think about the way um, we oftentimes approach the next challenge or the next job. So that was my frame. When this opportunity came along, it was a slam dunk for me for those reasons, and there really were three or four reasons why this became the only thing I wanted to do. The first is, it is an incredibly proud and storied brand. And I can't tell you the number of people I have heard from in Atlanta or people who grew up in Atlanta, friends or people who are just welcoming me to the city, who've talked about the important place the AJC has in their lives, that's incredibly important. And when I, I did think about starting up my own entity, and the hard thing about starting whole cloth is you don't have that brand equity. So having a great brand was important. The second is you have to have a real audience. And when you think about the power of the city of Atlanta and uh, the people who come to the AJC every day and the size of this area, really important too. And then when you really begin to unpack what this city is like, I, I said it yesterday, you know, we are at the center of the political universe. We are the capital of the hip hop world. More films and series are shot in this town now than any place outside Hollywood. I think maybe even more than Hollywood at this point. We have a great food scene. We have a booming tech scene. We have major universities. Atlanta is one of the most dynamic cities in the country. So that was number two. The third is the Cox family. And frankly, as I've gotten to know the organization a little bit more and I've gotten to know the leadership of Cox, Alex Taylor and Sandy Schwartz, uh, and I'm not saying this because they're my bosses, uh, but they're good human beings. And I think that has held true as I've met the rest of the staff. That was another really important component. And then the fourth related to that is there's a clear vision for the future. I was not going to take a job that would involve managing decline. It's not fun, and as I said, life's too short. And when I noted that Cox recently went out and acquired Axios, which is an incredibly innovative organization, it really sends a signal that Cox is serious about trying to solve the local news conundrum. And to me, that really is a fight and a mission that I'm excited about joining up with. Well, you talked about great people. Greg and I are great people. <laughs> 
And Shaney B is the best person. I mean, that's coming back to where we started. I think you're still lobbying now for those raises, right? Um, uh, another great person is Kevin Riley, our editor, who is, I've worked on a lot of news organizations. He is a really wonderful, special editor and leader of our newsroom. Tell our audiences what the role of a publisher is versus an editor and how are y'all going to interact and how do you see your charge as the publisher? Well, look, first of all, Kevin is uh, tremendous. He's a great leader and a great editor. And again, another big draw for me here. I mean, Kevin's a great leader. Yeah, I think I approach this role a little bit differently. And I think, again, when you think about traditionally what newspapers were, right, you had edit over here on one side and business over here. Because you have an editorial background, which I think is so interesting. I do. And that's why I'm not approaching this just as a typical publisher. And I think I, I don't pay much attention to titles or business cards, but that's part of the reason why I think the title is president and publisher, that the way that I'm approaching this job is holistic. You know, I think it's, it's my role and responsibility to help lean into what does this brand stand for? What are we committed to editorially? What do we want our voice to be? How do we think about the range of content we create? and produce, as well as what's our strategic direction? How do we build the business? And then Kevin and his tremendous editorial leadership teams are the ones that are going to be in the trenches, sleeves rolled up, uh, running the newsroom. And we're going to have folks who are in charge of building the product and folks who are in charge of thinking about the business. And my job really is to help to coach and point and to help set some direction and strategy. But yeah, you know, I've got a background in editorial, so I think as you guys have already started to realize, I'm going to send you notes, and I've got input and insights into our content, and that's part of the fun of it. I got an email this morning about my column this morning, and I was <laughs> impressed. You beat my dad to it. <laughs> well, one of the things you mentioned at our town hall, you also said this to the New York Times, is that you don't see the AGC as just an outlet for Georgia or Atlanta, a southern, a regional outlet. What does that mean to you? Do you see the AJC becoming something of the sorts of the New York Times of the South as an outlet with a much broader footprint than we already have? Well, I do think that's part of the tremendous potential of this. And look, I, I think that was always part of the mission of the AJC. And look, Atlanta really is the capital of the South to a certain degree. And I think that our first and foremost mission is to get up every day and serve the people of Atlanta. You know, this community depends on us and we need to be so essential in their lives every single day as a source of news, as holding public officials accountable, making sure they understand what's going on. And again, we have to be both important and interesting. We have to be both essential and engaging. But if we serve Atlanta really well, um, you know, then you think about Georgia. And the way I look at this, I, I have a dartboard up on a whiteboard in my office. I've drawn a, a dartboard. A dartboard on a whiteboard. Well, I've drawn a dartboard <laughs> okay. on a whiteboard. And at the Very center Atlanta. of it's Atlanta. And then the next ring out is Georgia, because I think if we cover Atlanta so well, you can't really think about the state of Georgia without thinking about Atlanta. So that's the next ring out in terms of both coverage and in terms of subscribers. And then you think beyond that, and you think about major cities across the South, uh, I do think we have the opportunity to super surf people. And then when you think about particular areas of expertise, if we cover Georgia politics as well as we can cover Georgia politics, you guys need to do a little bit better. No, if, if, <laughs> More work. I mean, yeah. No, if you, think about, if you think about the impact that you have, uh, your work resonates nationally. So I think that we will have people checking out the AJC and subscribing to this product because we cover Georgia politics so well or because we cover Georgia sports so well or because we cover the film and series community so well. So I know you just got here, but I'm going to put you under the spot. What areas, what beats do you think need a bigger focus for the AJC? 
Well, I can tell you, having been here for about two days, I think we just should cover traffic all the time. (laughs) (laughs) The, the, The one thing that everybody talks to me about is traffic. And by the way, while I say that jokingly, it's not a joke to the degree that we have to focus on what the audience wants, right? And and we have to serve a need for them. And so it's part of the reason why I hesitate to answer the question is that I don't know enough about this community yet. And I want to get out and meet people. I want to meet, I want to meet the school board. I want to meet government officials. I want to meet CEOs. I want to meet kids. I want to meet, you know, the 4-H clubs. I really want to understand what makes the city tick. And and as a you know as a concerned citizen, I want to know about schools, and I want to know about healthcare, and I want to know about crime, and the really important social issues that Georgia and Atlanta, in particular, are at the center of. I think it's important to talk about that. I do think that there is a critically important role that any news organization plays in a community to make sure that again we are holding our officials accountable, and not just government officials. Businesses, government officials, healthcare organizations. Um, it is our job to to make sure that we're holding things to account. But I do think that, you know, in those areas that impact people's daily lives, uh, we need to cover it from a reportorial perspective. I also think, by the way, you know, life isn't just about uh, eating your vegetables. And I think we go to concerts and we go to great restaurants and we listen to music and we see films. And I think we should do a really great job about satisfying those other needs in people's lives too. People want to be surprised. Yeah. And let's talk about your relationship with the community, because I know you spent quite a bit of time here when you were with CNN. You were asked on WSB radio if you are moving here. And people have asked me, are you moving here? And you've got two kids. And so tell us a little bit about your plans for the next several years. Yeah, I am moving here. My wife put it into great terms. She's like, you're moving to Atlanta. And I said, well, you know, I'm moving to Atlanta. So I'm, <laughs> I'm in the process of house hunting. My kids are, uh, my daughter's a junior in high school. My son's a freshman in high school. They love their schools. And so they're going to stay in New York and my wife's going to stay in New York. I'm going to be here. I'm familiar enough with the commute, but um, I wouldn't have taken this job. And I can't do this job effectively unless I am living here, unless I'm a part of this community. Um, I've got to get back to see my family. But, you know, frankly, since I spent years and years and years on airplanes running around to war zones and I did propose to my wife over email from Baghdad, uh, (laughs) she and I know how to balance this. And as she said, this is probably the most sane travel that I've ever had to do. Quick side note, you mentioned your wife's from Costa Rica, the proposal over email. How did you guys meet? (laughs) So I had just moved to Hong Kong. I didn't know a soul. And I had just come from doing a really long series, actually with Bob Woodruff again, uh, throughout the Balkans about human trafficking. It was in the early days where, you know, now the world has shined a spotlight on that topic. We were really beginning to uncover, um, you know, sort of the impact of human trafficking. And so I had just moved then from Europe to Asia I was very interested in in pursuing that storyline. A mutual friend said, hey, I know a woman who's working for an NGO and has done a bunch of research in human trafficking in Southeast Asia. You all should get together and talk about this. So Anna and I met one night to have dinner to essentially talk about underage prostitution and human trafficking. And that turned out to be our first date, ironically. (laughs) As Patricia said earlier, it worked out. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, but uh, no, we, we met on that. It was the last thing I was thinking about. We, we, uh, I just moved to Asia. I was 28 years old. And we met, and three months later, uh, we were engaged. Wow, the email came three months later. Three so months later. So you must have really known. We, we you knew. must have had a lot of confidence in that email. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so this is a Politically Georgia podcast, obviously. So let's talk a little politics. You're not new to Georgia, but you're about to be new to full-time living here in Georgia. What do you make of our political scene? What are you most fascinated by, by our state's politics? Well, I, I think to say that Georgia is a purple state is the biggest understatement in the world. It, it, it is the purplest of purple states. And at a time when the nation itself is so incredibly polarized, the fact that we have a state where there are such divergent opinions and personalities is neither surpri- is not surprising, um, but it's also pretty fascinating. And I think as I get to understand the players in the community uh, a little bit, both on the local level and in terms of the congressional delegation, I'm kind of fascinated to really understand how a state like this can be, frankly, as um, as polarized as it is, because I do think it's a bit of a blueprint for the rest of the nation. It's called gerrymandering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have I got a book for you to read? Um, <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. Um, so <laughs> let's fast forward a year. Um, you're here sitting here in this podcast studio in 2024, right before a presidential election in Georgia. Wait, what do you have wanted to accomplish? What new elements do you want to have brought to our readers, our listeners, our viewers, the multifaceted multimedia operation? Uh, a couple of things. One is um, I want there to be a daily habit. I'd like us to have a sense of urgency so that when people wake up in the morning, whether it's, you know, and they, they check out the AJC, whether it's in a printed paper, whether it's in a podcast, whether it's on AJC.com, whether it's through our app, I want them to feel like they can come to us and understand how do you start their day and what's going on. And, and so I think a focus on um, urgency, both uh, in the morning, but also, you know, in a 24 seven, um, scale, I think is really important. And, and that takes a bit of a different muscle, but I do think, uh, developing that 24 seven mentality metabolism is really important Two, I think really exceptional beat coverage. And again, we, we do extraordinary work as it is, and we have some wonderful beat reporters. We have some wonderful investigative work, but I want to go deep. I think that, and Patricia, we were emailing about this a little bit today, right? Even thinking about the new uh, leader in the legislature here, you know, there are personalities that matter. And I think following those personalities and following the characters and making sure that our audiences understand that whether it's politics or sports or business or culture, that we're following people in the community, that's really important. So I want us to establish that. The third is really figuring out those touch points in people's lives. It's wellness, whether it's food, whether it's culture, some of the things are referred to as well, that we can think about beyond just news reporting. How do we really create really compelling, engaging content. Uh, and then the fourth is multiple formats. I think um, this podcast is great. I listen to it all the time. And I would like to see us uh, think about and make some really smart bets in audio and in video that can also help broaden out uh, the way in which we reach people. One thing you didn't mention we have to ask about, print. I know we don't consider our outlet a, a newspaper anymore. You don't. You said earlier, and you said at the town hall meeting, you don't describe it as a newspaper. But, of course, the printed product is still a part of its offerings. What's the future of that? 
Well, look, I know it's been a topic of conversation both internally and I know uh, within the community. And again, it's, it's one of those things that I'm going to study. I think for me, the most important thing is to make sure that we're playing this essential role in people's lives, uh, that we are able to do quality content, do quality journalism, put it in their hands all the time. I'm less focused on the delivery system, to be honest, than I am on the journalism and the content itself. And at some point, you know, does that mean that we may not print the newspaper seven days a week? Probably. I think probably the way the business is going, that doesn't make sense. And so I think it's something that we really need to think about. We need to consider. We shouldn't shy away from it because, in my view, it's not taking something away from people. In fact, uh, as we make those kinds of decisions, it would be how do we make the agency stronger and a more impactful part of people's lives. And tell us really quickly about what are your own news habits? Not what do you receive, but what do you consume? What do you really use? And how does it go? Like starting at what time? So I wake up early. So I wake up uh, around 4.45 or 5, um, in part because it's. I find if I just work out then, then it's time to myself. And I typically would do it before my kids woke up. So I wake up early. That's when Patricia's up at, well, about 3 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> I'm up at 3. <laughs> That's impressive. Working for you. We, we, may, we may need to, you know, rejigger our uh, wake-up schedules now. I've got to wake up at 2.45 I know. I don't want to shame you, but I think I might have. It's impressive. She is up at 3. I'll get... I'll I'll get Slack messages from her about the Joel. I'm like, when you guys are when up, up, don't wake up now. And I think I'm early at six, you know. But. <laughs> there you go. So, so continue. So I get up early. Uh, I still get a lot of printed papers delivered. So I read the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post and the New York Post and the Financial Times. I still, believe it or not. The get. Post is my favorite. The, the New, New York, York Post. Post. Oh, it's a great read. You can't beat it. It's a fantastic yeah. read. So I probably won't continue to get all of those publications in I don't Atlanta. think you can. I don't think you can. I don't think you can. Well, but, but you're special. Maybe you can. Yeah, so I would typically flip through there. Um, I've now got a whole Substack list that you know, I'll wind up. And I'm reading. sorry. So you have these six newspapers. Are you just on your dining room table, like flipping through things? Or what do, are you doing? Or does it these? go to the recycling bin more yeah. often than not? <laughs> you know what? Typically, I find myself, if I'm being really honest, Be honest, since I am getting all of those, since I'm digging into those papers digitally, I a lot of them wind up in the recycling bin. Okay. So it's actually a really good lesson. I still read all of those publications, but it's less flipping all the pages. I still do enjoy flipping through a newspaper, I, I've got to say. Same. So I go to all those publications. Um, I have a list of sub stacks that I'll read. I get a ton of newsletters and I find, you know, whether it's the Axios newsletters and I've started, you know, the jolt becomes my first read every morning, I should say, by the way. Check. So we should be nervous. (laughs) We're not nervous. We feel good. So the first two things I read now are are the jolt and the Axios Atlanta newsletter I read every morning. And that's a great way to start. Yeah, I'll check out the e-paper for the AJC, obviously. Now my habits have changed a little bit. you know, in AJC.com, um, I do find newsletters are a really effective way to just consume news. And then I also still, um, there are a couple of magazines that I still read pretty religiously. I read The Economist. I read The Atlantic. Um, I think the kind of content that they create, the stories that they create are so distinctive and so important. And are those digital? Are you reading those digitally or do you sit down with any of those? Both. I okay. have digital subscriptions, so I'm engaging. But I actually read both of those magazines and I find value in that. Yeah. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us for this special episode of the Politically Georgia podcast. And we hope to have you back. Kevin Riley comes on all the time. He's going to probably, you know, we haven't talked about this, but since I'll be coming back from the game on Tuesday, maybe we 
we should ask him to co-host with you. Well, Kevin and I will be, you're, you're going to miss this one. We will be at the Wild Hog Supper on Sunday. You're going to miss Me that. Me too. Oh, I can't wait to go to my first Wild Hog Supper. <laughs> we'll see. You really are digging in. Yeah. You are digging, you're you're going to see a lot of hog, a lot of pork there. And a lot of wild. <laughs> Coming up on Wednesday's episode, we're going to have a little bit more about the legislative session. And on Friday's episode, we'll answer your questions for the listener mailbag, which you can now call into. It's the Politically Georgia podcast hotline. You can call anytime, leave a question, and we'll play it back and answer your question right here on the podcast. The number is 770-810-5297. That's 770-810-5297. And Shaney B used to have this whole team of interns. They've all moved on. It's just him. But you're, you're, you're able to handle it, right? Well, thanks so much for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast. You can count on new episodes to come out every Wednesday, every Friday, and as you know, whenever news breaks. We will see you next time on the Politically Georgia podcast from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Oh,